Happy Sabbath, everyone. I love that greeting because it is so often associated with sweet rolls in the morning, big music, fellowship, rich Sabbath schools, a good solid Sabbath afternoon nap, a hike in some beautiful part of the woods. Happy Sabbath often earns its reputation, and I hope that's true for you. I love this day every week. Would love to offer uh, a couple words of particular welcome. The first, a bit of a forecast. In two weeks, we as a congregation here will welcome um, a new executive pastor. Uh, Alarise Colley joins us from Michigan, originally from the Bahamas, undergraduate degrees in economics and Spanish, Masters of Divinity degree. So thankful for the work of our search committee under the direction of Paul Dibdahl. We are delighted to have Pastor Colley, who will be with us just days from now, and uh, very excited as we move into the future to have three women and three men pastoring this congregation, and my heart is full. And, um, In addition, a very special welcome again, as Tommy mentioned, to our guest as a part of the Friendship Tournament, uh, a basketball tourney, uh, 15 schools up and, town, up and down the best coast, and uh, also one team from across the waters. We are delighted to have you here. This is a place of great celebration almost all the time, but when you come to town, it's even a little bit better. So we're delighted to have you here worshiping with us this morning. In light of the basketball tournament, the sermon shall begin with basketball and end with basketball. I did a little research on the teams with the longest-running NBA championship drought. Uh, a tie for fourth place, actually. The Los Angeles Clippers, 45 seasons without holding the top prize, along with the Cleveland Cavaliers, also 45 seasons. The Phoenix Suns, 47 seasons. In second place, the Atlanta Hawks, 57 seasons. And in first place, the Sacramento Kings, um, 64 seasons. Interesting, the kings who have never worn the crown, which is, uh, <laughs> seems a little interesting. You know. But do you ever feel in your life that season after season goes by and there's a gap between where you are and where you want to be? Perhaps in your relational world, your financial picture, your spiritual experience with God, everything that you hope for in life, elusive, season after season. Do you ever feel that way? We're in the third part of a sermon series, God's Kitchen, Ingredients for a Healthy Soul. We get, began by looking at just simply being like Jesus. 
Instead of focusing on that great storm on the waters, stressed to the hilt, simply resting in his Father's arms. We then explored the urge that we have to hear the sweet and comforting whisper of God amid all the noise of life. Today we turn to reading, what it means to actually pick up these scriptures, this book, in a way that helps us deal with these gaps that we find in our lives between where we are and where we'd like to be. We turn to Luke chapter 4, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. And there's our first lesson. He was hungry. Jesus was hungry. He can relate to us. We see in the Gospels that he's hungry, he's thirsty. He gets angry, he's discouraged, he wants his followers to be in a place that they are not. Jesus has the same experience, wishes to have his thirst quenched from the place that he finds himself and where he'd like reality to be. The problem for us as sinners is these ambitions unfulfilled, these cravings without fruition, can lead us to become quite dissatisfied, even bitter, discouraged, perhaps even sarcastic. The late American comedian Rodney Dangerfield actually made a whole career riffing on this reality. He would say things about his life like this, my wife and I were happy for 20 years, then we met. <laughs> or my psychiatrist told me I was crazy, and I said, I want a second opinion. He said, okay, you're ugly too. Well, I remember the time I was kidnapped and they sent a piece of my finger to my father. He said he wanted more proof. <laughs> or once I pulled the job, I was so stupid, I picked a guy's pocket on an airplane and made a run for it. <laughs> or famously, he would say, I get no respect. The way my luck is running, if I was a politician, I would be honest. <laughs> but then perhaps we can land it here. He would often say, life is just a bowl, not of cherries but of pits. Does that image capture how you feel? Sometimes life, not what we want it to be, just pits, and we're hungry because our family, perhaps our family of origin, our marriage, our children, our career, our finances, our spiritual life, the way this existence is shaping up, nothing but a bowl of pits. We first learn that Jesus was hungry. He was hungry, so it's good that he can relate to us. The problem is that we as sinners, sometimes this deficit in desire puts us in a place where we can be sarcastic and angry and bitter, thinking just a bowl of pits. Verse 3 the devil said to him, to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. 
So not only is he hungry, but now we have this three-word phrase, the devil said. We learn that there can be a wrong way to satisfy your hunger. There can be even a destructive approach to satiating the appetites of life. And I'd submit to you, this is a bit of the world that we live in. Perhaps a playful story to illustrate our times. Um, stay with me on this. A young man named Chuck bought a horse from a farmer for $250. The farmer agreed to deliver the horse the next day. The next day, the farmer drove up to Chuck's house and said, Sorry, son, but I have some bad news. The horse died. Chuck replied, Well, then, just give me my money back. The farmer said, Can't do it. I went and spent it already. Chuck said, Okay, then, just bring me the dead horse. The farmer asked, What are you going to do with him? Chuck said, I'm going to raffle him off. The farmer said, You can't raffle off a dead horse. Chuck said, Sure, I can. Watch me. I just won't tell anybody he's dead. A month later, the farmer uh, ran into Chuck and asked, what happened with that dead horse? Chuck said, I raffled him off. I sold 500 tickets at $5 a piece and made a profit of $2,495. The farmer said, did anyone complain? Chuck said, yes, just the guy who won, so I gave him his $5 back. <laughs> yeah. If the person next to you is struggling with that, just after the service, you can kind of <laughs> explain how that went. Yeah. It seems to me we live in an age where the ends too often justify the means. That we will say whatever is necessary to get elected. Because, oh man, getting elected, that will satisfy our soul. We'll do whatever we need to get the vote because, ah, oh, getting the vote, that will satisfy our soul. We live in an age, student athletes, where the professional realm is filled with too many cheaters, with substances that are banned with flopping on the basketball court and attempting to evade the eye of the referee. Some of us can remember when you called fouls on yourself, even when the men in stripes were there. And how bad do we want to get an A on that exam, even at the expense of a little plagiarism, a little cheating, looking at the paper next to us? Oh, if only we could succeed athletically or academically, then we would be we would be full. So what does it hurt a little bit of cheating? And perhaps the strongest urge that we have in this day, we have discovered that through hurtful, even poisonous words, we can somehow in the moment make ourselves feel better about ourselves. From time to time, the pulpit needs to be a pointed moment, and so you'll forgive me. Just days ago, we celebrated Martin Luther King Day on this campus, and the important work that he did in the civil rights movement, and how valuable we are as children of God, a campus-wide celebration. But unfortunately, in a little place called Yik Yak, where people can anonymously 
post what they'd really like to say. I discovered some despicable, inappropriate, insulting language directed at people of color. Because somehow, I guess, when I can disparage another race, that makes me feel better about myself. Brothers and sisters, you can score 28 for 28 on your theological exam. But if that sort of venom is coming out of your mouth for someone of a different color, you fail. You fail. I overheard a conversation not terribly long ago. A group of men who were saying disparaging things about women and the idea that women wanted to gain equality with men in this world. These are churched men saying things that should never be said. Brothers, you can score 28 for 28 on your doctrinal exam. But if you say things like that, you fail. Not terribly long ago, I heard a couple of employees of the church talking about the negative physical attributes of someone else. I say to you, you can go 28 for 28 on your biblical knowledge, but you fail when you destroy someone else in that way. And one more, I have a very close friend who even this day is going through tremendous pain for some folks took one of his sermons and clipped just a small clip out of context, in fact, pasted it together and twisted it and distributed it widely to the point where he is suffering and having to deal with all kinds of people as he travels around the world, wondering if he really made these comments. I say to you, fellow brothers and sisters, 28 for 28, but you fail when from out of your mouth and from your heart you destroy other human beings with the idea that somehow it will make you feel stronger, better, more alive, more beautiful, more righteous than the other. Jesus said to the people of his day, religious people, mind you, oh, you are whitewashed tombs at times. On the outside, you're looking good, but inside, rotten. You are children of a snake, he would say. You are children of the devil Himself. You are pursuing means of satisfying your own insecurities that not only are destroying other people, but you're rotting to the core in your very own being as well. And so Jesus says, uh, the devil said, oh, the devil said, Jesus reacts to the devil said, no, not the way to go. I'm moving now to Matthew 4.4, for Matthew includes the full comment from Isaiah. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. First, he was hungry. Second, the devil said, now it is written. And here Jesus said something to not only the devil, but to all of us. Jesus says there is a better way to satisfy the longings of your soul 
than the cheap, quick, and ugly options offered by the devil. Jesus says, in fact, it is in the consumption, the metaphor he uses, he's relating the way that we approach the scriptures to eating food. Jesus says the way that we approach these scriptures, the way that we can consume them, actually will provide for us satisfaction. Eugene Peterson, one of the uh, finer theologians of our era, has reflected on this idea of how we interact with the scriptures. He takes, for example, Psalm chapter number one, or the first psalm, rather. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, the Bible, and who meditates on his law day and night. Now, what does it mean uh, to meditate? Uh, the English word here, meditate, is from the Hebrew word, hagah. So Peterson presses into this a little bit, and uh, among the verses that he brings to light, uh, places like Isaiah 31 and verse 4, as a lion growls over his prey, and the word growls there, or the word chews there, is also from this same Hebrew word, Hagah. So watch this. Peterson pulls it all together. Hagah, he says, is a word that our Hebrew ancestors used frequently for reading the kind of writing that deals with our souls, the Bible. But meditate, he says, this English word, is far too tame a word for what is being signified. Meditate seems more suited to what I do in a quiet chapel on my knees with a candle burning on the altar or to what my wife does while sitting in a rose garden with the Bible open in her lap. But when Isaiah's lion meditated, she chewed and swallowed using teeth and tongue, stomach, and intestines. So Peterson translates uh, Psalm 1, uh, 1 and 2 differently. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, he says, you thrill to God's word. You chew on Scripture day and night. You chew on the Bible. You put it in your mouth. You taste it. You swallow it. You ingest the Scriptures day and night. I think we need to stick with this metaphor a little bit longer because it shifts our thinking about how we might approach the Bible. So chewing on Scripture. All right, kids in the audience, I need some help here. Let's take a look at this a picture. Uh, what are we invited to chew on here? Yeah, it's the Scriptures. That looks like some pretty good Bible to eat right there, I'd say. Okay, now inside the Bible, we have uh, this story. What story is being illustrated here? Jonah and the whale. Yes, very, very good scholars. Or how about this one? That's Jesus walking on the water. There's the boat, little crackers and cheese. Very, very nice. How about this next one? Ah, the story of David and Goliath was never so delicious as pretzels and chocolate. And, or how about this one? Uh, 
Yeah, I, I couldn't figure this one out. Um, this is actually the ascension of Jesus uh, that's being <laughs> described. Um, okay, you do better. <laughs> or how about this next one? Mm. Believe it or not, that is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. <laughs> Now that's s'mores to the ultimate right there. That looks, that looks good. Or this next one. Ah, the parable of the sheep. A little sweet and salty together. That's pretty good. Or how about this next one? Yeah, I'm not sure whether Jesus is a clean meat in this picture. I'm not, uh, I was a little nervous. Not sure what that is exactly, but. Um, or how about this next one? Yeah, Noah's Ark, very good. Okay, here's, this isn't the advanced question now. Oh, some of you got it. It's Jericho, and those are the bugles outside getting ready to knock down the place. What does it mean to chew on Scripture? It seems the Old Testament gives us this linguistic connection Jesus goes right at the metaphor in his response to the devil. Jesus says you ought to be chewing, you ought to be tasting, day and night wrestling over these scriptures. I think what it means, at least on the surface, is fairly obvious. To prepare a meal takes time. I go to the grocery store, I put together the ingredients, it's put in the oven. It's all displayed. I taste the foods. I consume it. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Day after day. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Does that sound like your approach to the Bible? Oh, I open it up. I go to the grocery store. I, I write down. I think about. I pull out. I, I get some friends together in the kitchen of the Lord, if you will. Oh, breakfast, lunch, dinner. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I just am consuming. And I got to tell you, friends, that when I open up that particularly good meal of the Sermon on the Mount, I'm not naturally a peaceful person but I read those instructions about peace, and it changes me. I am not naturally one that wishes to turn the other cheek, but I consume those words of Jesus, and it changes me. Oh, I've got loads of goals and ambitions for this world, but Jesus says, stop worrying about this world. It's the next one. And I chew on that, and it changes me. But I think that the way it changes is, is, is really quite exciting and profound. Notice what Jesus does in this passage. He says, don't just worry about earthly bread, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. He responds to the devil. The devil says, Jesus, aren't you feeling a deficit in your life right now? A gap between where you are and where you want to be? Jesus says, to the devil, hey, my goals are much higher than what you're talking about. My vision for my life, the hunger that I have is in a whole nother league. The devil comes back and says, Jesus, 
Why don't you jump off a very high place to demonstrate something significant? And Jesus comes back with Scripture. No, I've got something completely different in mind, far better. Jesus essentially says to the devil, I've been chewing on the Scriptures. And then a third time, Jesus, I'll give you the whole wide world. All of the championships, all of the elections, all of the money, all of the control, every relationship you want, you get it all. And Jesus responds a third time with Scripture and says to the devil, you don't understand. I have even bigger aspirations than everything. Jesus models for us that through the regular consumption of the Bible, eating it, taking it in, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, everything goes to a new level. Everything changes. God does not simply say, I will meet your needs. God says you have the wrong needs. You need much bigger aspirations. And so as he often does get it right, C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory such a classic. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Basketball. A few days ago, Officer Bobby White of the Gainesville, Florida Police Department got a call. Apparently, there was a disturbance. Some young people were making too much noise. And so he got in his patrol car and went to the scene to discover a group of young people, teenagers, playing basketball. He quickly sized up the situation, let them know that someone had called in on them and asked what they thought about it. They were petrified, standing next to this man in uniform. He said, you know what I think? He says, I think it's crazy that someone would call in about a group of young people playing basketball. In fact, he said, can I play? Here's a picture of what happened next. The officer playing basketball uh, with the kids. Apparently, they brought some of their reinforcements in and were beating him pretty badly at the game. And he said, but you know what? I'm coming back, and I'm going to bring my own reinforcements. (laughs) Well, in the state of Florida, they have dash cam. You know what I'm referring to? So when the police stop, that's now filmed. And so all of this was on camera. The police department was so pleased by the actions of Officer White that they posted the video on their Facebook page. Millions of folks watched that video, including a man by the name of Shaquille O'Neal. Maybe you've heard of the Hall of Fame basketball player. O'Neill had an idea. He said, I'd like to participate. Officer White goes back to this neighborhood and brings a number of his fellow police officers to play basketball. But one very 
special police officer <laughs> joins them. And I'd love for you to watch what happens. That's a nice hoop. Oh, yeah? I ain't real good at that. Is that like NBA height? I told you I was going to bring some backup, right? Yep. Huh? You guys ready? I'm going to have some other backup for y'all. Back <laughs> on some backup. I will. I will become. Become. Whatever. Whatever. I want to be. I want to be. I will. I will be. Be a leader. A leader. And not a follower. And not a follower. I will respect. I will respect my peers. My peers. My elders. My elders. And especially my parents. Especially my parents. All right. Love you guys. I don't know whether Officer White ate these scriptures in the morning. I don't know whether Shaquille O'Neal chewed on this Bible. But what their example illustrates, there's something more than being a policeman that just upholds the law. There's something more than being perhaps the world's greatest basketball player for a time. There's having bigger goals, broader vision, deeper hungers. And I submit to you this morning that through the regular and intentional consumption of this book, our desires grow to a place out of this world. May it be so.